Hello and welcome to today's Euractive event between Farm and Fork, the role of innovative ingredients and food technology in achieving the Farm to Fork objectives. My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based in Brussels and I'm coming at you live from the Euractive studios in the heart of the EU quarter. Now, this conversation is coming as people here in Brussels are still digesting the implications of the EU's farm-to-fork strategy, which was adopted by the European Commission in May of last year. It's part of the overall EU Green Deal strategy of Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, and its aim is to transition toward healthier and more sustainable food systems all the way from the farm where plants and animals are raised to the plates where we eat our food with a fork. Of course, there are a lot of elements in this chain in between the farm and the fork. Equally important is what happens in between at the processing level. In this regard, specialty food ingredients play a key role in food reformulation and processing. So today, we're going to talk about this middle part of the process and discuss how the food ingredients sector fits in with the EU farm-to-fork strategy. How does the strategy view innovation in the food sector? How can food reformulation help meet the farm-to-fork goals? And how does the public feel about whether food is really a sector that needs innovation? Now, during this debate, you at home will be able to ask your questions to the audience using the Slido feature. You can go ahead and type in your questions there, and I will read them out to the panelists at the end of our discussion. So let me introduce those panelists now. Here with us today, we have Karen Fabri, direct, a Deputy Head of Unit for Bioeconomy and Food Systems at the European Commission's Research Department. We have Italian center-right MEP Herbert Dorfman, member of the Parliament's Agriculture Committee and rapporteur on the Farm to Fork Strategy Report. We have Jeroen Knoll, Managing Director at the European Federation of Food Science and Technology. We have Akatya Smith, Policy Director at the Good Food Institute Europe. And we have Hirt Meismans joining us in a moment, President of EU Specialty Food Ingredients and R&D Leader for EMEA at Cargill. Welcome to all of you. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say on this topic. Karen, let's start with you. Um, since you're working on this stuff at the Commission, how is the Commission helping to boost science, research, and innovation, specifically when it comes to food? Well, uh, thank you. Thank you, Dave, first of all, for, for the invitation. I'm, I'm delighted to be here with you today. Um, how, uh, how are we working to, uh, to foster innovation and, and, and science and research? Well, um, we, we have a mechanism that we call the Horizon Europe. It's our framework program for research and, uh, and innovation. Uh, we're currently in a phase where we it's the new year and it goes until 2027 and it really uh, is designed to deliver on green deal objectives including the farm to fork strategy 
Um, as you know, the, the Farm to Fork strategy includes 27 actions, uh, which uh, include, for instance, revision of EU legislation on food contact materials. Uh, uh, there's a new legislative framework on sustainable food systems that is expected in 2023. There's an EU code of conduct for responsible business and marketing. There's mandatory front of uh, pack nutrition labeling that is expected and sustainable food labeling and also um, new targets on food waste reduction, for instance. And all of these issues are going to require new research and innovation uh, to, to be able to deliver new solutions. Um, we're doing that, as I mentioned, through uh, the Horizon Europe um, uh, framework program. Uh, we have, uh, we're doing that through three pillars. So there's a, there's a basic research pillar that we call excellent science. There's another research pillar that we call global challenges and, and a third one on innovative Europe and through all these different mechanisms that we are going to be able to support research in the various issues that, that are uh, relate to the farm to fork strategy. Maybe I stop here so I leave room for the other panelists to reply. Thanks a lot, Karen. Herbert, let's turn to you next. So do you think that the EU is getting the balance right here between regulation and innovation? Well, good morning. Um, well, actually, I think if it comes to food and to agriculture, um, consumers sometimes are very particular. I think normally consumers are very open-minded to innovation or even uh, eager to get innovation. Very few people would buy a car uh, which has the technology of five or ten years ago or uh, buying medicines, for example, uh, which have um, are from five or ten or, or fifteen years ago, knowing that there is something more efficient on the market. On agriculture and food, this is quite different, and I think part of the problem is also the storytelling that we always. Uh, or very often say to the consumer that uh, give this bucolic view of agriculture that in the past everything was nice and there was everything was working on the everybody was working in the farm and having having nice products and eating fresh products directly from the farm and all these things and this brings to a very particular, let's say, behavior if it comes to innovation um, or it, it, consumer behavior if it comes to, to, to innovation. And I personally think also the farm to fork strategy is not very clear on this because also on the agriculture part, and this morning we are not speaking that much about agriculture, but about processing. On the agriculture part, the, the farm to fork strategy gives quite a lot of objectives how or goals we need to achieve less inputs but it doesn't uh, afterwards um, give a clear signal how we want to achieve this and i personally think we cannot achieve these goals if we go a step backwards to the good old times uh, we need innovation on the farm side and i'm convinced we need innovation also on the food side, on the processing side. Um, coming to your question on, on regulation, um, 
I do not think that there is uh, necessarily regulation does not, uh, let's say, allow innovation. I cannot see this um, problem at the European side. I think uh, there's a lot within our European food regulation, there's a lot of room for maneuver uh, in order to, to innovate food, uh, food uh, products the, or food stuff. The important question is if the consumer accept this and if you look what is happening with European food also with very innovative products we are very successful even having a very strong regulation and a very let's say stringent regulation if we compare to other regulations in the world we are quite successful in Europe and worldwide if it comes to uh, to, to sell our our food uh, around the world and then there's a Another aspect I want to underline, uh, and this is important in Europe, um, we have uh, something like a food culture. Uh, this means uh, we insisted a lot, for example, and I think this is a good approach, we insisted a lot on geographical indications, on, on our culture if it comes to food processing. And there, innovation is not that easy, because if I have, for example, a prosciutto di Parma, or if I have a, 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 a Spain, a Spain uh, a prosciutto, a Spain jamon, um, uh, or if I have a French wine, I cannot innovate from one day to another the processing because the processing of this product is part of a cultural heritage we have in Europe and we have to look also on these aspects that we have a lot of products in Europe which are part of our cultural heritage and where innovation is not, not that easy. A last, a last uh, reminder, um, in the farm to fork strategy, on one side we speak on, uh, about innovation, on the other side, always also in the parliament, we spoke a lot about ultra-processed food. And I very often ask myself, what is ultra-processed food? If we come to, our, to innovation, is innovation not very often also linked to processing, to higher processing, and what means of processing is necess necessarily a problem, or what is this term we use very often in politics, this term of ultra-processing or highly processed food, what is this? Is there a definition for this? I never saw a definition about this. I think it's more a political debate than a real thing on the ground. Thank you very much. Yeah, and we'll be coming back to this issue of food being so closely connected to culture and traditions uh, later on in the discussion. Jeroen, I want to turn to you next because you're really dealing with these issues of innovation and food technology. So how do you think that innovation in the food sector can contribute to the goals of the EU's farm-to-fork strategy? Yeah, thank you for the invitation. And um, I'm, I'm happy to be part of this uh, uh, webinar. Um, yeah, if, if I think food, food science and technology is, is very important in, in the conversion of the raw uh, agricultural resources into foods for the consumers. Um, and, and Herbert already mentioned that the, the discussion about ultra-processing and highly processing. But if you look at how food science and food technology and, and food innovation can play a role in, in reaching the, the farm to fork goals, 
uh, it's it's about looking at at more uh, introducing more diverse and sustainable raw materials. Uh, for instance, the alternative proteins uh, to to look and to design more sustainable processes and and, and um, novel processing reducing water and, and energy consumption. Um, to also eliminate waste in the production and distribution and consumption um, of of the total uh, value chain. Um, also improving the traceability and product safety uh, of our foods uh, to provide more affordable and balanced nutrition. Um, so also reformulating the food composition and, 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 and modified processing to provide a, provide a more balanced nutrition um, and also in, in improve uh, the health through our diets and then the products that we uh, put on the market. So to explore the release of macro and, and micronutrients. So there's a lot of innovation uh, needed to to make more um, safe more sustainable and more healthy foods but at the same time this should also be tasty uh, and, and um, um, diverse and accessible to to the european consumers so there are, i think there are a lot of challenges where uh, the food science and food technology community plays an important role in in, in getting uh, safe and nutritious and sustainable foods on the market Great, thanks. Akasha, you're also working closely with these issues. Um, why do you think innovation in food ingredients and technology is important? Yeah, thank you, Dave. It's great to be here uh, on behalf of the Good Food Institute Europe. Um, so as just a tiny bit of context, we're an NGO working to promote plant-based uh, meat, cultivated meat and fermentation derived products. Um, and why, I mean, why do we believe in these products? We believe in these products um, because we think that by me making meat from plants and from cultivating it from cells, uh, we can drastically reduce um, the greenhouse gas, gas emissions that come from the food system. So we know that 70% of, um, of agricultural emissions come from, from the animal sector. Uh, we can also reduce the risk of zoonotic diseases, um, antimicrobial resistance, um, and essentially feed more people with fewer resources which helps us to achieve the farm to fork um, uh, objectives. Um, so at the Good Food Institute, we want to make the sustainable option the default choice. Um, and we do this by trying to ensure that alternative proteins are not only delicious, uh, but they're also affordable and, and accessible. Um, and this is where innovation comes in. I mean, innovation in food technology and ingredients is, is absolutely crucial to making this happen. Um, we're already seeing a lot of exciting things happen. And happen. For example, uh, looking at innovative foods, we saw Redefine Meat has just launched their 3D um, printed plant-based whole cut beef products in Europe. Um, we've also seen in terms of ingredients, EFSA's just approved uh, Eat Just's uh, novel mung bean protein, which is paving the way for the sale of their, their plant-based egg product in Europe next year, which is very exciting. So, I mean, there's a lot happening already, um, but if we want to really emulate meat with, with plants and by cultivating um, from cells, we really need to create the same flavors and textures of meat. Um, and this does involve uh, new ingredients and it involves using new processes. Um, and looking at the market kind of broadly today, a lot of these companies are using the same technologies uh, that they were 20 years ago. So we're still in the really uh, kind of early stages of plant-based um, meat innovation. So, Lots of developments happening, but so, so much more, much more potential. Um, and crucially, I think that the pace of change is just uh, it's nowhere near fast enough uh, in order to kind of unleash the 
the environmental benefits um, that are possible through through a greater shift to sustainable proteins. And I think the speed of this progress uh, depends to a large extent on, on whether the EU really chooses to invest in a big way in, in sustainable proteins, um, in open access research, you know, much in the same way that they have um, for other kind of positive climate change innovations like renewable energy. Um, so as part of a climate change strategy, if we see more open access um, research and development into the sector, which we already are seeing through Horizon Europe, um, we think that there'll be many, many more products on the market um, in the coming years, which can really match conventionally um, produce meat, eggs and dairy uh, in terms of taste and price. Um, and this will have a huge impact on, on getting the flexitarian uh, market to shift their consumption. Um, and also crucially, freeing up more public public uh, public R and D will allow companies then to start investing more in the in the food ingredients and the technology. Um, and with this kind of support to scale up in a big way, uh, these foods have the potential to cut um, global climate uh, emissions by five gigatons every year, um, and also to add one trillion US dollars to the global economy. So this is a really a, a, you know big growing sector that we're talking about. Um, and essentially, there, there, there's better, more sustainable ways of feeding uh, the 450 million uh, Europeans than, than the way that we're doing it right now. Um, and consumers have the right to, to expect that their food is healthy, um, that it's affordable, and absolutely above all, that it is delicious. And we really believe that these two goals are not mutually exclusive. Um, and yeah, food innovation is, is the way to get there. Thanks, Akasha. Yeah, for sure, a 3D printed plant-based burger that is very much an innovation, right? It's very much in line with what, what we're talking about here today. Uh, here, let's turn to you next. So at Cargill, you guys are working on specialty food ingredients. So what is the contribution of the specialty food ingredient sector to healthier and more sustainable diets broadly? Hey, Dave and everybody, good morning. And thank you for the invitation here. I'm Dave, if you don't mind, I'm gonna answer it on behalf of uh, EU specialty food ingredients as an association. Right, because that's a little bit broader than uh, than Cargill in itself, and also there I have the honor of being the president uh, for this year. And so, specialty food ingredients really you need to think about. You know what it is, right? It's talking about uh, products which are vitamins and cultures and enzymes and fibers and uh, plant-based proteins, additives that you use in your food to make it safe, to make it tasty, to make it nutritionally balanced. And overall, as an association, I would say that uh, our contribution in towards that healthy and sustainable space is basically at three different levels. One is very clearly on our offering. Our offering keeps evolving and we supply to people who need to make uh, consumer goods. We supply opportunities to make sugar-reduced products, to make fat-reduced products, to, um, to make them more healthy by putting in the right nutrients, uh, to really make it also make it more sustainable. To, to, to Acacia's point there, we've been helping a lot to create a number of new and better functional uh, alternative proteins and plant-based proteins on the market. We're providing enzymes that help people to uh, brew in a more sustainable way so that you don't necessarily need to use to use malts. That, that's one big one, is simply the continuous evolution of our portfolio. The second big one, I would say, has to do with the fact that as an industry, we do do our homework. So we have these things ongoing inside our own companies where we are continuously improving the way we process, improving the way we make things. 
typical example, rather than going through a multi-step chemical synthesis of vitamins, we now have members who make this via biotechnological routes in, in one step, right? And it's not because we don't like chemistry or we don't trust chemistry. It's because that new route, those new ways of processing it, make it more sustainable, make it more energy efficient and make it more reliable. But the third one I would like to remind everybody about what we really do is that we're somewhere in the middle of that chain and, and we do make that system engagement possible. A typical example, we were just talking a moment ago there about these plant-based proteins or, or alternative proteins as people sometimes call them. Uh, and that's very nice and fine that we make those proteins available so people can use them and formulate uh, alternative meat analogs, dairy analogs, you name it, egg analogs. But then what do you do with the rest of the plant? If, you, if we were to extract only the protein and we would throw away the starch and the fiber, that would be a real waste and that would not be contributing to a more robust food system as a whole. And so I'm very proud that a lot of our members are actually doing quite a lot of work to make sure that we always used close to 100% of that plant-based material which we get from farmers. And if we look at it from that point of view, you see that as an industry, we try to do our best, but I think that point has been made here already a few times. It is about a chain discussion and it is about how we all participate to make the whole chain work. And I hope that people are a little bit convinced that we can ca contribute quite actively to that. Thanks a lot, Kurtz. So, um, Herbert, I wanted to go back to you and pick up on this idea of uh, the, the kind of the traditional aspects that we associate with food, right? So the farm, the most visible aspects. We know that our food comes from a farm, and we know that what the food looks like when it ends up on our plate. But I think people have less of an idea of what happens in between. So when it comes to regulation and policy making, do you think that there's too much focus on those two parts because they're the most visible parts, that the farm and the fork? Uh, and maybe not enough focus on the in-between part? Yeah, definitely. Um, but just one sentence on, on the debate we had before, and very much agree with what Gert said. Uh, we need to look at the, at the whole aspects of sustainability. And if it comes to plant-based proteins, for example, I ask myself, um, we have a large amount of agricultural land in Europe is permanent grassland. This permanent grassland is useful only if you have animals which use this, this grass. Otherwise, or we lose this, uh, this permanent grassland or as for, for food production, or we transform this permanent grassland in arable land, which would be the worst uh, choice if it comes to, um, to, um, to uh, uh, climate change. So also here we need to find an intelligent way because it's clear i agree that we have a very high consumption of meat in europe but we should not think that going to a completely plant-based diet we improve our 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 uh, sustainability this is not true because you have to look at the whole uh, chain and here i agree what Gerd said you need to look at the whole plant but you need to look also what is happening on our agricultural land um Yes, I think uh, to your question, if I look at the, at the farm to fork strategy, the farm to fork strategy speaks mainly about agriculture. And I very much welcomed and welcome the approach of the Commission to see the food chain 
from the farmer to the to the consumer but i think even in the farm to fork strategy even the consumer does not have a proper evaluation and proper importance because the consumer is extremely important the consumer takes a choice and the and 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 the the, the processor and the and the distribution clearly is heavily influenced by the consumer's choice and then i'm very well aware that it can also influence the consumer choice but if you look for example in the farm to fork strategy where the farm to fork strategy puts real objectives numerical objectives reduced by 50 percent by by 20 percent whatever it is all about farming the only objective which is not really about farming is about the food waste and the food waste for for sure is also is also an important topic for for processing for distribution and for the consumer but i think the code the, the idea of a code of conduct for um for the for the processing industry and for the distribution is a good idea as an idea but if i look what is the code of conduct now it is not it is not i think it will not improve the situation because there is nobody who will control the code of conduct that is simply as a self-regulation without any um, performance control because if the if the if the the, the 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 industry and the distribution they themselves need to ev ev evaluate the performance you can you it is it is very much uh, let's say clear what will be the outcome in the long term so i think it had been easy for the commission to reflect also on real objectives in the processing industry for example how to reduce sugar how to reduce salt in the products um, but nothing happened on this there is no in the farm to fork strategy i cannot see any real objectives uh, how to come to our to our let's say a, a more innovative and also healthier food chain well, Karen, I know you're more involved in the research side, but maybe you could respond to that in terms of the commission's focus. And certainly, you know, in order to regulate this middle part of the whole farm to fork chain, we need information, we need data. So how available is the, the data and the, the, the fact sets about the, the middle portion of the, the food chain, the farm to fork chain? It's uh, thanks for the question. It's actually quite a, a, a critical issue because um, we're finding that it's, it's very difficult to get that kind of data. Uh, we uh, launched a, what we call a research and innovation investment gap study, and the results will be coming out very soon uh, before Christmas time. And um, our, our, our tenders, let's say, the, the, are, had great difficulty getting data that, that, could, that could be really useful. Um, much of the data is really missing from that middle part of, of the food system. So, uh, so indeed, I think a lot uh, of work needs to needs to be done to work with with uh, with processors, with retailers, um, and also food services, which are in that middle part, to see how can we work together to to make some some of this data shareable and and open uh, for 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 investigation. Let's see. Um, I, I'd also like to add uh, that 
when it comes to innovation and and science in general, I mean, we've we've come a long way. We we were very much focused on on sectoral science and innovation some years ago, and it's only been in the past few years that we've we've come to the realization that we really need to work from a much more systemic approach not just on science, but also on, on the innovation front. So the need to, because of the urgency of food system transformation, because of the little time left to transform the food system, we really need to achieve what we call co-benefits. So we need to find solutions, um, innovative solutions that will deliver on nutrition and health, that will deliver on climate and environmental sustainability, that will deliver on circularity and will also empower uh, citizens uh, beyond the consumers. So, um, so any innovation that happens, if if it can be um, defined or designed to already upstream address and deliver co-benefits, we can have much more impactful outcomes. Yarun, what do you think? Do you think that the policymakers are getting this mix right and are focusing enough on this middle part? I don't think uh, there is enough focus on, on, on the middle part. And um, I think it also reflects to the discussion uh, on, on ultra processing and highly processed, because we need processing to, to, to reach those targets. If we would like to use uh, more plant proteins or alternative proteins, reduce sugar or reduce fats in, in, in our foods, we need to process the food. So, so I think there should be more focus on, on, on the middle part in how how we can establish this and i think we also have to um be more visible or more transparent to the consumer that 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 we need processing to to make uh, foods ready readily available to to the consumer that, that there is because consumers want the convenience they they want uh, a long shelf life so they all have these these demands um that can only be met through processing and processing itself is is i think not not the issue here that we have to discuss, but I think it's it's about the nutritional um, uh, uh, value of 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 the of, the, of the, the foods that we produce. So we have to look at can we reduce the sugar and and, and the fat because the highly the ultra processed foods that, that that we are discussing, it's mainly the discussion about those foods are high in fat or high in sugar, high in salt. Um, so the focus should be on, on, on how, how we can make more healthy and, 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 and sustainable foods and that we need processing. So there, there should be more focus on, on this part. That, and I think more education towards consumers that uh, there are certain processes needed. Akasha, as somebody working in uh, the plant-based uh, meat substitute area, do you think that you're getting the, the help that you need from policymakers uh, in terms of focusing on this middle part uh, and really looking at the innovations that can deliver more sustainable or healthier outcomes? Yeah, I would agree with what's been said already. I think um, it's it, you know it's great that we're already looking at the whole whole value chain to some extent, and we're seeing more and more projects that are really trying to bring together different actors on the value chain. But we definitely need to bring more focus to the middle part, um, uh, the middle part of the value chain. I mean, we it's not enough just to talk about farmers. It's not enough just to talk about consumers. Um, 
and uh, companies are already doing a lot of R&D themselves. And, and then, as I said, are producing really interesting new products, but so much more can happen and so much more really does need to happen. Um, and one example of that is, for example, fermentation, which is a very quickly growing um, new space. And um, a lot of work can be done into kind of finding out new novel um, uh, feedstocks and sources for fermentation. But if companies are carrying this out themselves, they're not going to probably do a completely extensive search. They're going to um, uh, be, be they'll be going to be constrained by that. And then the results remain um, within the company rather than being shared. Um, so I think there's a huge potential there. We've carried out some recent research as well, looking at um, what the kind of key blockages are in, in the alternative protein space. And a lot of the, the results of that were that there's just not enough sufficient um, infrastructure. Um, that also the demand for raw materials and ingredients is, is, is fast um, outpacing supply. Um, and yeah, so there's a whole a bunch of more work that can be done around that. And picking up the point that she had said actually um, about uh, the, the whole value chain and using waste in side streams, I think is just such an important one. Um, so for example, chickpeas is a you know kind of hot new plant pr protein um, source. But then what do we do with the leftovers? You know, what we're creating a market for chickpea flour example. So I think that's, um, yeah, that, that's something that really needs to happen. Um, I just wanted to pick up the point um, from Herbert before, um, and just to say I couldn't couldn't agree more that we absolutely need to look at the whole environmental picture when we're talking about uh, any source of food. And I mean, the environmental and the food system is extremely complicated and we need to consider it from all angles. Um, and I just make a distinction there, I think, between intensive agriculture and extensive agriculture. And unfortunately, intensive agriculture is still very high. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, alternative proteins is certainly not the silver bullet. I think we're going to need a system that brings together many different options. Um, if we can displace some of the intensive farming, that would create huge amounts more land um, for, for, for carbon sequestration, um, for grassland use, for, for boosting biodiversity. Um, so there's a huge amount of co-benefits um, in that space as well. Here, it's, um, as I mentioned before, food can be an, an emotional issue for people, an issue that's very tied to culture. And something I think when, when the average person thinks about food, again, they think about the farm and they think about the fork and maybe they don't like to think about what happens in between. So do you think that's also a temptation for policymakers to kind of ignore the in-between part, uh, largely because it is so kind of out of focus for consumers in the way that they think about their food, particularly when they're thinking about it in maybe a more emotional or kind of traditional way? There's certainly an element uh, to that, Dave. It's, it, it has to do with the fact on where it's most visible, right? And, and where those, and, it, and one el another element I'd like to throw in there has certainly related to the timing and the time perspective uh, related to innovation in that space. So yes, it is emotional, but it's also reality that if people innovate in the very beginning on the agricultural part, on the new crop part of, of the value chain, there you're talking about say seven to 10 years type of innovation cycles in, in, in at the consumer level, it goes much faster. It's two to three years. And so talking about those co-benefits co that Karen was referring to, it's much more fast visible and it has a more, much more uh, immediate impact. In the middle part of that chain, where you talk about innovation cycles of five to seven years, and so you get these different type of timelines, you get these different type of things that people probably associate with 
lack of transparency, with lack of sense of urgency, with lack of speed, which has nothing to do with the willingness of industry or the willingness of people to, to step up and to really innovate and to make it work, but simply with harsh reality. And so that emotionality that, that, that comes with it um, is, is probably not best answered by very factual uh, answers, but there we probably need to do much more work also in regulatory and also in how we look at things in simply making sure that we also bring that consumer research and social research into the picture. So far, we've been focusing very much on life sciences and that is absolutely needed, but without talking and without addressing that emotional needs that consumers have, without the trust that consumers could have into the food system, we're not gonna get anywhere. So it absolutely needs to be addressed not only from a pure hard science point of view, but also from a regulatory and from an environmental point of view, yes. Yeah, I think that's a good point. We can't just ignore or dismiss that emotional component of, of food and agriculture. Um, so before, we've had some great questions come in from the audience. Thanks for those, keep them coming. Before I go to those audience questions, I wanted to ask you guys about some of the health implications of specialty food ingredients. Um, maybe uh, we could go to uh, Karen first on this to get the, the research and the, the data perspective on this. How can food reformulation help address uh, some of the health issues we have like non-communicable diseases uh, and some of those other public health objectives that we have? Um, are there ways that specialty food ingredients can contribute to that? Well, <clears throat> uh, the food ingredient uh, industry can certainly contribute to the shift towards uh, healthier and more sustainable diets in developing specialty food ingredients with a strong scientific evidence related to their healthiness, their naturalness, their sustainability. And this, of course, will facilitate the reformulation of food products with the substitution of healthier ingredients uh, that replace uh, sugar, salts, and fats, for example, that have already been mentioned. And when it comes to, I'd just like to pick up on, on, on your comment before on, on behavior um, and, and, and uh, let's say the more social uh, related aspects of food systems that we have definitely overlooked. And indeed, in the past, much effort was put more in, in the, in the uh, life sciences uh, and, and farming and primary production type of research and innovation. And, and now we, we recognize that and we have launched some dedicated calls for proposals that have specifically tackled uh, the transition to healthy and sustainable dietary behavior. Uh, also the understanding and measuring of factors that influence dietary behavior. So these are the kind of research issues that, that we'd like to also take forward to, to better understand what are these mechanisms that are driving um, dietary choices, for instance. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, Yerun, I'll go to you next on this. What, uh, in your view, could be the potential contribution of specialty food ingredients to some of these health outcomes? Yeah, so so th there are some challenges, and I think um, if you, if you would like to to have the the consumer make the, the make the more healthy choice, uh, and, th and this mentioned earlier uh, during this discussion is is that um, you should provide them the 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 easy choice, uh, and that's also uh, there is a difference between a, a consumer and a citizen. So so citizens do demand more nutritious and healthy foods. But when they're in a supermarket, they, they make different choices, and they're, they're based on on 
on the, the, that moment what they would like to to eat and 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 how they are um, nudged to 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 make certain choices. So I think they're they're already mentioned the consumer science play plays an important role, but also how can we how can we nudge the consumer into making the 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 right choice, and maybe also um, have the industry make uh, healthier options maybe publicly available to the con consumer without no no notifying them so for instance uh with the salt reduction um sometimes it's it's better not to mention that you are reducing the salt because consumers can perceive this as uh, having less taste um so sometimes as, as a producer um, you can make the right choices and 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 without informing your your customer and so that's yeah i think there there's this combination needed where we interact with the the social sciences and and and, and the life sciences to see how we can how we can make these changes happen that's an interesting idea about making the reformulations without telling the consumer because it might put them off i mean herbert uh thinking about what jeroen just said um, and particularly about, you know, we know these studies, they show that consumers say they want healthier food and then they go to the store and they don't buy it. So from a regulatory point of view, what can be done to help push or nudge consumers toward specialty food ingredients that can be beneficial for health? What, what's the appropriate policy role there? Well, I actually think there are different levels. For sure, regulation needs to guarantee safe food. And uh, safe means that we have a level of, let's say, uh, safety. There's, uh, there are no components in the food, nor chemical uh, components and what else, which could be really a real problem for, for, for us. But then I always have a very important question for myself, what is healthy? And I think we very often forget why we are eating. We are eating because we need energy. We have a body and our body needs energy and there needs different amounts of energy and this depends on our age and our activity, if we are, we are doing sport or not doing sport, which work we are doing, but we need energy. And energy comes mainly from fat, from sugar and proteins. And we can for sure, there's for sure, for example, if we speak about salt, there's clear that what well, I think it's clear that we consume too much, we have to reduce. But what is the problem to consume sugar or to consume fat or to consume proteins? There's no problem at all. There's in a lot of consumption that we simply consume too much. This is a different thing. But to say that, for example, a product is healthier because it contains less fat is a bit not, or it's not really appropriate, I think. I, I think we need to work on two important topics. One is on education. And if we want to come to a healthier and more balanced food, we need to educate our consumers. And to help the consumer with education to take the appropriate choice. So to know the consumer who knows how much he needs, how much of energy he needs, and how much he or she and how much energy he or she assumes. 
And then we need the proper information, and the proper information meets, needs, uh, means labeling, and we need, to, we need to reflect how to inform consumers properly um, what they're going to eat. But to say simply that the food is healthier because it contains less, I think is not the, the, the appropriate way. Yeah, and we'll, we've actually had a question on this topic of somebody who called it the know everything era. That you know, labeling just something as no fat or no anything gives the consumers maybe a misleading idea of how healthy that product is. Uh, so we'll come to back to that during the discussion. Um, here, wanted to come to you on this as well. Uh, so how can specialty food ingredients contribute to these health goals? And then what's the right regulatory mix to try to nudge consumers toward those health goals? Agreeing uh, very much with what everybody else has been saying here. I think from a, as an industry, what we try to do is we try to make sure that it can be done, right? So that it can be formulated and the options can be created. But once those options are there, it's very much about, because this is a problem of diet as well for those who are, let's call it overnourished as for those who are, let's call it undernourished. It's a total diet problem and it's about how do we behave and how do we make sure that the distribution is there so that people have access to that in a safe, tasty uh, and sufficient way of getting to that food. So consumer education is certainly part of it. I think in an earlier dialogue we had with, uh, with Jack Bobo, he was talking also uh, and uh, he was also talking about how people simply are not reading labels and people are not consumers on the daytime, don't have time, cannot spend the mental energy to make that choice. So next to the fact that the option is there, it's about making sure that those options are put in the market in a way that it becomes part of our habits. And from that point of view, uh, one of the things that we've seen, some of our members in Euro EU specialty food ingredients are really starting by education programs in schools and making sure that we capture, quote unquote, future consumers and that eating really becomes a more conscious part of how people behave. And if we can get it to that level, and if we can combine that with making sure that the right things are available on the market, then I think that we need, need to leave consumers also the choice. Because to, to, to have us points, yes, of course, it's about energy and we need that energy and there is nothing wrong, not with a meat analog, but also not with a steak. But if you have that choice, it's also those other parts that food brings to you, joy, uh, community feeling, preparing things, passing along heritage to that. That whole cultural and emotional dimensions that foods have is something that we absolutely cannot forget in this and probably over should also not over-regulate. Akasha, when it comes to plant-based uh, products, what are some of the health benefits there and then how can consumers be nudged toward them? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that there's a there's a lot of research that shows that substituting animal based meat um, for plant based meat uh, can lead to health benefits um, in terms of uh, lowered le levels of saturated fat, um, plant based products being free from cholesterol. And of course, they contain um, the dietary fiber that we don't have in animal products. Um, so there are, there are definitely a lot of benefits. And then if we link it to the kind of wider public health discussion around zoonotic diseases, antimicrobial resistance, um, uh, foodborne diseases, there, there is obviously that um, very important angle to it as well. 
Um, and I think it really it, it really depends what products we're comparing them to as well. And the fact is that uh, if you have someone who's who's consuming a, a, a processed hamburger every day of the week and they shift some of their consumption to a plant-based burger, um, that's definitely going to have health benefits. It's not the same as if they were to start eating chickpeas and kale, but unfortunately, that's that's not. We know that that um, consumer dietary change that doesn't work in that way. So it's really about um, how can we get the how can we encourage um, large amounts of people to make um, big changes to their diets? And we know that um, you know campaigning on, on that has hasn't had a huge amount of success. So. From our perspective, it's really how do we make the default option um, more sustainable? Um, how do we make it healthier? Um, how do we make it as easy as possible for consumers? You know, considering I think it's been mentioned before that there are a lot of people that are maybe not putting the the, the effort or the money or the time into into really considering what the 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 most sustainable or the healthiest option is. Um, so it's really, I think, about making sure that these products, um, the products that are on the market, that are there, that are convenient, that are accessible, um, are, are, are healthier. And so that people are not having to kind of seek out specialist products or, or paying more. Um, and I would just link back to a point I've made before that um, environment, um, health, we, we know that these are important drivers, particularly in Europe. But we also know that at the end of the day, it does come down to taste, price um, and convenience. Um, and I think there's also a lot of potential if we look at blended products. So, for example, um, plant based products are now starting to use um, fermentation uh, uh, derived uh, sources or inputs, um, which can help address the salt point as well. So by really boosting the taste with fermentation, um, we can we can address some of those issues as well. Great. Well, let's go to let's go to some of the audience questions. Now I'll start with the questions that got the most thumbs up. So we have a question from Christian Kalk, and this question is for Herberts. Uh, so the question is to Herbert Dorfman, any news on a lighter regulatory path for gene editing? How about labeling requirements? That's a part of this conversation we haven't touched on yet. So um, do you have any news on, on making the regulatory burden less onerous for gene editing? Well, I think the question is on so-called new genomic techniques. Um, we had uh, exactly one week ago uh, an important conference in the Commission about this, this technology. And I think the timetable is now quite clear. We will have uh, in 2022 all the preparatory work for a new regulatory framework on, on NGT and then at the beginning of 2023 a proposal from the Commission side. Um, I personally think uh, NGTs, this new technology, CRISPR-Cas first, first of all, but there could be also others, um, can be um, a tool to come to a more sustainable uh, agriculture uh, to less use of uh, of pesticides and, and fertilizers. Um, but knowing these technologies, and I personally think we will go at the European level more on a definition of the process of breeding. So we will, I personally think we should say uh, these new uh, technologies are considered normal breeding technologies, uh, not GMOs, as long 
as they accelerate something which could, could occur also in nature. Um, and if this is the definition, it is impossible to distinguish the result. So it, is, it will be impossible to distinguish a plant uh, which is the result of a CRISPR-Cast technology or another technology available for breeding like ionization, for example, radiation or other um, mutation processes which are perfectly used today and commonly used in, in, in breeding. So it will not be like on classical GMOs where it is easy to understand which plant is coming from a, from a GMO and which is not. On this technology, it will be simply impossible to distinguish the one from the other. And, and therefore, I think it will be also very, very difficult to come to, a, to an obligation to label uh, foodstuff which contains uh, ingredients which are a result of, of, of these new technologies. Did anyone else have a comment about this gene editing issue? No, okay, I'm going to go to the next question from the audience then. Uh, the next uh, most thumbs, thumbs up, thumb up, I'm not sure how to say that. Uh, this question comes from Paul. It's a question for Karen. Although I'm not sure if you could answer this, Karen, but let's try anyway. Um, Paul asks, is the EU Commission planning any information campaign to educate the EU population about new breeding techniques? Indeed. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Paul. <laughs> I, can't, uh, I can't reply to that, but I can, uh, I can refer back to what, what Herbert just mentioned, that there will be... <clears throat> a new a new uh, um, framework uh, for a new breeding technique for new for NGTs and so new breeding techniques will be will be part of that of that package so um, we have to see how that develops and I'm sure that at some some point in time of course there will be there will be public and uh, consultations on this now whether we have an actual education campaign is something else um uh, that that that's that's something i cannot i cannot um speculate on at the moment okay thanks uh so the next question uh will be uh okay so the next uh question will be from maria this is to all the panelists, so we'll see um, who wants to answer. Question is, we heard a lot about consumers. My question is addressed to all panelists. How can innovation in food technology support the traditional farmers and shepherds' survival, especially in the European South, by producing more sustainable food uh, to cover their needs? So this is a, a big issue in Europe uh, about the preservation of traditional uh, agricultural farming. We know that um, the farming population is getting older and young people are not coming in. And so there's a lot of concerns about how we uh, keep the farming sector in Europe um, sustained. Uh, let me go to Herbert on that first, because I, I know, Herbert, you have to leave shortly, but I just want you to get, have your thoughts on this. Um, how can uh, innovation in food technology help preserve that rural agrarian way of life, particularly in the European South? Well, I, I personally think uh, if it comes to farming and especially on, on food in Europe, we always need to 
maintain a bit this balance between innovation on one side and cultural heritage on the other side, and especially in the South, I'm coming from, from myself from Italy, this cultural heritage has a very, very important role. Um, we in the South, there is uh, people in the South, they are in the Southern part of Europe, they are very much connected to food, to food quality, um, and and to, to, to this cultural aspect of 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 food and and we did, we didn't speak till now in this this morning about this how to deal how to find the, the balance for example on 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 products with geographical indications which per definition are the definition of a tradition of a traditional process how to innovate them and i think also there we need to innovate because also a bottle of wine for example a bottle of brunello di montalcino or the chianti or the the, the rioja today you do not produce like 100 years ago also there is innovation but at the same time there is a tradition behind uh, if it comes to to farming itself um well, I think actually that also also the farm or the farmers and the farmer on the on the farm side there need to be innovation if we want to come to less input in more sustainable farming. It's a lot to do also with with innovation because it's too easy simply to say don't don't use less pesticides. Yeah, you need to have a technology to use use less pesticides. You have need to have a, uh, an alternative, and and I think we 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 need to we need to reflect on this and and to do this we 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 need to uh, support also the new entry of of new of younger farmers and with this i do not want to say that older people cannot apply technology because this would not be true but it's clear if it comes to invest in 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 precision farming and new technology which is will be available also for smaller farm not only for bigger ones we need uh, young people who are willing to invest and who are who know to use this technology and and therefore i think uh, we should we should i think i think we will have a, Already now, I'm, I'm coming from a region where we have a lot of small farmers, and and I've, I see them very very open-minded to to innovation. I do not think that um, only because a farm is is small, farmers are not open-minded if it comes to comes to innovation. Great, thanks, Herbert, and we'll let you go. I know you need to run off, so thank you very much, Herbert, for participating in our discussion today. Uh, Jeroen, I know that you wanted to. Take care, bye-bye. Uh, Jeroen, I know you wanted to come in on this as well. Um, there, of course, there, there are other uh, ways of innovating. So, so if you look at the, the developments in, in the logistic in, in the supply chain, um, it's, it's um, oh, there's uh, the official alarm on the first of the month. Um, hope it doesn't interfere too much, but it's it's getting closer to to the consumer so so it's it's a it's about the uh, short short supply chain where there's only one or even no uh, intermediate between the farmer and and the consumer so there there's a lot of innovation going on there but also on the processing side with developing small scale processing units that can can operate on on farms and move from one farm to the other farms uh, innovation in packaging 
And so there's a lot of innovation going on. And I think also the young generation taking over from, from, their, from their parents uh, is looking into new ways of, of uh, new business models and new ways of, uh, of innovating within the regulatory framework of their traditional processes. Karen, uh, you wanted to answer this as well, Karen? Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, just to say that under Horizon Europe, we are launching a number of partnerships. And one of these partnerships is on agroecology. So um, the, many of these partnerships uh, create the, the, the space for place-based innovation and place-based demonstration and living labs, for instance, where, where uh, according to me, uh, small farmers can certainly play an important role and not only small, small small farmers so let's say that we are putting in place mechanisms that can facilitate the um the uh, participation of, of of a wide variety of actors um also on the ground to really uh co-create solutions that that can that can deliver on on specific needs also of of small farmers so research and innovation uh, policy can help really test and demonstrate uh, and seed this kind of innovation that needs to happen. Hirt, how do you think that innovation and food technology can support traditional farmers? Well, it, it will have to, right? Because if, if you see where we're going and if you see these, these new, I think Karen talked in the beginning about trade-offs that people are making today. And those trade-offs that farmers need to make today are different than the trade-offs that they had to make yesterday. Now they have to balance sustainability and soil health and environment and non-food use of, of, uh, of, uh, of acreage uh, to, the, to the open public in a different way. And so if we don't innovate and if we don't support these people there, it will never work. The big element in there is that if we want young people in there, if we want small farmers to continue living, we have to make it worse it's it for them as well. So if we don't incentivize them, if we don't make sure that it can be a fair way that they can make a living as well, we will lose them. We, they, why would they step in and why would they continue to be, to be farmers? And I, I think everybody around this table and everybody in the industry is at the same time fully convinced that those are the people who are at the basis of it. If they don't, they are the, the prime people who have their influence about uh, diversity, about carbon capture in soils, about offering and creating that sustainability and the food security that we all know. So we have to continue innovating. And I really like the point that, that, that Jeroen was making there. Innovation and technology is not necessarily high tech. It's, it's, it's a lot of different things how new technology makes Take digital as an example, how that can make farmers' life and farmers' income more stable and more worth. And if we do that in the right way and give these young people the right incentives, then we will have a healthy farmers' community. And if we have a healthy farmers' community, we will have a healthy food system. Akasha, I think when people think about um, plant-based meat alternatives and lab-grown meat alternatives, then you often hear from people saying, oh, what about the traditional farmers? So what do you think, I mean, how can innovation in that area help um, traditional farmers? 
Yeah, thank you, Dave. I think this is such an important topic and I'm really happy to have the opportunity to speak on it. I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's a difficult situation at the moment. You know, consumer demand is changing. Um, we know that. We also know that political pressure is really rising with things like the Paris climate change goals. It's not an easy time to be a farmer. I think plant, I mean, particularly looking at plant-based um, protein, um, I think we really need to try and see if we can reframe this in terms of um, the opportunities that, that do exist. Um, so for example, uh, growing crops for feed, uh, for animal feedstocks, the, the returns in terms of profit are just much lower than if a farmer were, for, for example, to grow, um, uh, to grow protein crops that are gonna be used in plant-based protein. So there is definitely um, a big opportunity there. Um, and there's been a whole discussion on this in Australia, whether kind of conventional animal farmers have been teaming up with protein, um, uh, plant-based protein producers, uh, you know, from the perspective of the pro demand for protein is, is, is skyrocketing and, and somehow we need to work together to, to, to meet that. Um, I think, you know, it really comes down to how can we support this from a policy, from policymakers level, from, from the EU level, from the national level and down to the local level as well. Um, and there's been some good examples, for example, in Canada with the Protein Industries Canada, with the government working um, with with protein uh, protein um, uh, crop producers um, to to really try and shift this uh, field forward, and, and have been able to create a lot of jobs and GDP from that. For example, also from Denmark, there's a lot happening with plant-based protein at the moment now, and and creating opportunities under the CAP eco schemes um, to provide opportunities for farmers who are shifting to plant-based crops. Um, and I think there's a lot of levers that could be used, you know, in terms of grants, loans, um, uh, loans for, for for using new equipment, that kind of thing. Um, and then on a kind of broader perspective of of leveraging change. Um, we still need a lot of research into, for example, what kind of plant-based protein crops would make sense in different regions. Um, I think it's very difficult for a farmer now who's interested to move into that space to know what they what they should be growing. Um, and then also, you know, what what is the future consumer demand if they if they start growing peas now? Is there going to be a market for that in five, ten years? Um, so more kind of forecasting around that would help provide some certainty. Um, and provide the kind of yeah the certainty that there are there there will be um, a use for, for for these crops further up the value chain. Well, the next question comes from Elena. This is the question I uh, previewed a bit before with what Herbert was saying. Uh, so Elena asks, how do you deal with usage and acceptance of new nutrients in this know everything era? Uh, here, you might be well placed to answer that. I mean, when on packaging, we see such an impulse to say no fats, no no ingredient. How do you how do you deal with the usage and acceptance of new nutrients with that type of expectation from consumers? That's a very tough one, right? Because an expectation is a reflection of these people's reality. And I think part of what we need to do is, and I think somebody referred to it earlier, we need to get better at telling the story of who we are and what we do and how we contribute to food. It's an emotional reaction as we've talked about before, but you can wonder, and I think part of what we need to tell is how food as an industry, the whole agro-food chain, what we've done and what we've achieved over so many years from now. In my lifetime, the world population has doubled and, and the people that, that are, have been undernourished have been halved. 
And those are great achievements that couldn't have been done if we always put no on that label, right? And so there is something I think where we're going to have to ask for a bit of, uh, uh, let's call it realism. We have to ask for respect. We have to ask for optimism also in the food chain as a whole. But if it really becomes like it can be nothing, yeah, then it's impossible. Then it's purely impossible. And so I think there is absolutely next to the things that we've been talking about, about there is a, a part of science that is needed, life sciences, social science, consumer sciences. There is part of a regulatory environment that is needed as well to make sure that these things can happen. But there is this part that is absolutely crucial is about how do we communicate with more and more of these people? And how do we make sure that what we do, there is a lot of the things we've been doing as an industry, a lot of things that we've been doing as an agro-food supply chain, we don't have to be ashamed of what we do and how fact that we have been feeding so many people and with increasing uh, food safety criteria, with in increasing life expectancies. And we have contributed to that. So I think there is an element of simply standing straight, standing tall and telling that story and also being proud of our contribution in that. Okay, so I'm going to ask this next question. This will be the last question, and I wanted to save this till the end because it's a kind of big picture question. And it will kind of give each of you, I think, also an opportunity to give your final thoughts here. So Sabina asks, to the experts on this panel, is innovation an imperative? So do we need innovation in food? Karen, let's start with you. I think I'm biased, <laughs> so I would say absolutely yes. And there, there are many ways in which we should be innovating and, and can be innovating. But innovation isn't just about technology innovation. It's about, it's about innovating how we innovate also. It's about social innovation. It's about governance innovation, institutional innovation. It's about new business models. Um, so yes, we do innovate. We do need innovation. Um, and not just in one particular area like nutrition, but we also need it to be systemic, to cut across different objectives. I mentioned co-benefits before. It's not just about nutrition. It's also about climate. It's also about environment. It's also about inclusion. It's also about food poverty. So yes, the question, the answer is definitely yes. Yarun, is innovation an imperative? Yes, and, and I think it was mentioned already earlier today that, that we need innovation to address all the challenges in the farm-to-fork strategy. So, so if we want to reduce waste, if we want to make foods healthier, um, we, we need innovation. So without innovation, without improving the, our processing or improving the products, uh, improving the way we communicate uh, to consumers, uh, new business models, new distribution models. Uh, I think we we are not able to to reach those goals in in, in optimizing the, the the food value chain. Akasha, is innovation an imperative? Yes, absolutely. Um, so at GFI, we really look at the whole the whole broader picture, both globally in terms of how do we move the sector forward. So we work with scientists. Uh, we work with big food companies, with startups, with policymakers. And if I was to signal one um, blockage, and that there's more than one, but the main one is, is really innovation. And I mean, coming back to the point that how do we how do we shift consumer demand? It comes back to taste. 
it comes back to price and it comes back to convenience. And a lot of that rests on using innovative ingredients, um, working with the middle part of the supply chain to, to make uh, plant-based and cultivated meat more appealing to consumers. And finally, Hirtz, do we need innovation in food? Oh, absolutely. We absolutely need it. Innovation is about change, right? And, and, and best change for the better. And usually when there is no change to be seen, that's typically in a dead system or when things are not happening anymore. And if you look at the current challenges that, we, that we're facing as an agro-food chain today, uh, and a specialty food ingredients, I think we have no option. It's, it is absolutely an imperative. It is mandatory for our survival and it's mandatory to reach our farm to fork goals, I think. Great. Well, thank you to all the panelists for some really interesting interventions. I think it's given us a lot to think about, I think particularly in this area, which is obviously something that we all do every day. We all eat uh, and we all kind of have certain ideas about where our food comes from. And I think uh, certainly sometimes our ideas about food can be emotional or traditional or romantic even maybe, um, but there's such a complex uh, chain in between the farm to the fork. And it's, it's interesting to see the European Union really grasping this and really looking at all the different parts of the chain. And that's you know, a huge issue that we're going to be discussing here in Brussels over the coming year. Again, as we fully digest the farm to fork strategy, this is a long-term objective. So it's going to be something that uh, policymakers and everybody else here in Brussels are going to be discussing for a very long time. So it's good to get these discussions rolling. So thank you so much uh, to the panelists again, and thank you to you at home for following along and spending your morning with us and asking some great questions. I wish you all a great afternoon, and we'll see you for the next Your Active Debate. Thank you.